Good morning. Let me add my welcome to, uh, to Phil's and to Dan's. Uh, my name is Matt. Um, I wonder, how do you feel that you need to be strong? Maybe it's staying strong for your family, holding it together, keep, keeping the kids going, looking after your parents, supporting your struggling spouse. Maybe it's staying strong in your singleness, enduring the isolation, the loneliness of lockdown. Maybe it's uh, holding a difficult position, an awkward line, uh, keeping going a struggling project at work. Or maybe it's at church. There's so much to be done, so many gaps that need filling, so many people to look after. Or maybe you need to stay strong simply for yourself because you worry what will happen if you show the cracks or the whole system fall apart. And how are you finding trying to stay strong? If you're finding it hard, then I hope you'll find great solace as we look at these words from Mark's Gospel together now. And I hope you'll see that you do not need to stay strong. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words to us that Grace has just read. We pray that we will hear you speak as we look at them together now. Amen. Um, in our verses today, Mark gives us a portrait of Jesus and a portrait of his disciples at this turning point, uh, this moment in which Judas has resolved to betray Jesus turns to action and the events that will lead to Jesus's crucifixion a few hours later are put into motion. And these two portraits uh, of Jesus and of his disciples are completely different. Uh, I really don't think there's any overlap. Um, so let's begin uh, with the disciples, a picture of weakness. The disciples a picture of weakness. Uh, verse 32 picks up the narrative uh, straight after the passage we looked at last week, uh, Jesus's final meal with his disciples, verses 12 to 25 of chapter 14, and that prophecy at the end at the Mount of Olives that the disciples would all fall away in verses 26 to 31. And they travel on in verse 32 to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, where Jesus asks most of his followers to sit and wait while he takes um, Peter, James and John with him and goes to have some time with his heavenly father. And it's immediately clear, isn't it, from verses 33 and 34, that Jesus is not in a great place emotionally. He uh, asks his three closest disciples to stay and keep watch, verse 34, while he goes a little further to pray. Uh, we'll come back to the content of that prayer as we look at Mark's portrait of Jesus a little later. But just for now, note this embarrassing scene in which Jesus three times commissions these disciples to keep watch and pray, and three times returns to find them sleeping. And this the same Peter, who had so boldly and emphatically declared himself to be Jesus's right-hand man, just a few verses earlier, just a few hours earlier, in verses 29 and 31. And verse 40, 
they do not know what to say to him. They have no excuse other than that they were tired. It makes you wince as you read, doesn't it? And yet Jesus bears with them. Though they are like children who promise not to have another biscuit, and moments later you find with their hands in the cookie jar, Jesus bears with them. He doesn't lose his temper. He gently explains their failure to them the first time. Verse 38, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then after their third failure, in verse 41, he simply moves on. Jesus bears with them. What a relief that is for weak sinners like us. And then um, as we reach verse 43, does Mark think we've perhaps forgotten who Jesus is? reintroducing him in verse 43 as one of the 12. Well, I doubt it, given chapter 14, verse 10, where he's introduced as Judas Iscariot, one of the 12. Rather, I think Mark wants to make it painfully clear that Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest companions. Only a few hours earlier that evening, Judas was sat around the table sharing supper with Jesus. And now here he is bringing armed soldiers to arrest him. And the method of betrayal, the familiar greeting of rabbi and a kiss. The equivalent maybe of of our affectionate arm around the shoulder. How Jesus managed to keep his cool at this barefaced betrayal, I do not know. And then we finish this passage from the disciples' point of view with their desertion. After one brief failed attempt to defend Jesus in verse 47, they can't face the pressure. And verse 50, everyone deserted him and fled. They ran away. Scared, clueless, confused, they ran for their lives, leaving Jesus stood alone among his persecutors, where all drank from the cup, in verse 23, where all said they would never disown Jesus, in verse 31, now all flee, verse 50. As we see in the example of that one particular man, in verses 51 and 52, who many people assume to be the, the writer of the gospel himself. And so, just as Jesus predicted in verse 27, all his disciples fall away and he is left completely alone. And are we not to look at these hapless, hopeless disciples and see ourselves looking back in the mirror? We we may not have such a place in history or in society, that we could let Jesus down as publicly as these followers did. But there may be some listening in this morning who attempted to throw in the towel, to give up on Jesus. This Christian thing is too hard work. It's too exhausting. There's too much suffering now for reward later. It's too hard going against the flow. I'm not sure I even believe it anymore. But if that's you, 
let me encourage you to stick with Jesus. As all of these disciples, apart from Judas, did. There is more to come. As we get to the end of Mark's gospel. If perhaps only a few of us are in that place, tempted to betray, to desert Jesus once and for all. Surely all of us must admit that we are weak. We must see ourselves among those sleeping disciples, knowing that we let our Lord down and fail to keep his commands far more frequently than we would like to admit. I think of the sister sending a rash response to that message. She knows she shouldn't have read it on the way to bed. She shouldn't have responded straight away. She should have slept on it, talked about it with someone, prayed about it. It's too late. It's sent. The damage has been done. And she knows that she's not kept the Lord's command to love her brothers and sisters again. She's been weak. Or the brother struggling with a particular sin that he's given into again and again. He knows it's wrong. He knows where to go in the Bible to see that. He's been open and honest about it with others. He said he wouldn't do it again. And yet here he is. He's fallen into temptation again. He's failed to keep the Lord's command again. He's been weak. If that could describe you, if you see yourself there, falling asleep in the garden, as I certainly do. Keep reading, keep listening. Because Mark gives us a portrait of the disciples, a picture of weakness. But he also gives us a portrait of Jesus, a picture of strength. Let's, um, let's go through the passage a second time now. But this time we'll focus on Jesus and we will see his strength. And we begin with the extraordinary words and prayers of verses 33 to 36. Surely one of the rawest and most moving accounts of Jesus' inner life in all of the Bible. Look down with me at your Bible and let's read verses 33 and 34 again. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Take a moment to meditate upon those words. What would you make if someone told you that's how they were feeling? You'd be pretty concerned, I think. And so we begin here with anguish. The, the Greek word translated as troubled, it's actually the same word that's translated as alarmed in the resurrection narrative, chapter 16, verses five and six. So it seems there's a sense not just of distress, but, but of dread, as Jesus anticipates, maybe more than he ever has before, what lies ahead of him. Think of the butterflies in your tummy before an interview, a meeting, an email that you're not looking forward to. In verse 35, he fell upon the ground in prayer. And don't his words in verse 34 remind us just a little of Psalm 42 and 43? That cry of a downcast and desperate soul. 
my soul is downcast within me. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And if we were surprised to hear the psalmist speak in such stark terms, how do we feel about Jesus speaking like this? Jesus, overwhelmed by sadness to the point of death. Jesus, feeling so depressed that he felt physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually close to death. It's incredible, isn't it? Mark could have skipped over this scene. He could have jumped from verse 32 to 43. And nothing in the sequence of events that leads up to the cross would have been missed, would it? We didn't need to understand, to see Jesus' anguish, to understand and see his mission. And yet Mark pauses. He shows us this precious scene of Jesus, the eternal son of God, fully human and struggling, feeling falling to the ground, begging for any other way. What an extraordinary picture Mark gives us of the humanity of Jesus, of his emotions, of his inner life. And what comfort to us when we are tempted to know that we can turn to one who knows exactly what it is like to suffer great temptation. But Mark doesn't pause here just to show us Jesus's heart. We also see in this incredible prayer, a little more of the why of Jesus's death. Uh, look down with me and then let's read verses 35 and 36 again. He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What a prayer. But again, we reel, don't we? Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, expressing a different will from his father. Is that possible? Is that okay? Well, there's much that can be said, but, but briefly, one writer um, says that, that part of being made human for Jesus was being given a human mind, human will, human emotions, not just a human body. And surely a natural part of having a human will is that it desires self-preservation and the avoidance of suffering. Now, of course, Jesus still shared the one divine will he had with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He was still fully God even as he became fully human. But nevertheless, the gospel writers show us again and again that he had a real human will. He faced real daily choices, as we all do, about what to do and whether to submit to his father. But what exactly is the content of Jesus' request here? What, what, what is he really asking for? Well, acknowledging that the hour has almost come, the hour of his death, he prays that his father will take this cup from him. 
The cup of God's wrath was frequently spoken of by the Old Testament prophets as the cup of God's anger and judgment that would be poured out over the nations and ultimately over God's own people because of their sin. Let me read a few verses from Ezekiel, chapter 23, verses 32 to 34, to give us a feel for what is being spoken about here. Ezekiel 23, verse 32. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You will drink your sister's cup, a cup large and deep. It will bring scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You'll be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. The cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry and chew on its pieces, and you will tear your breasts. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. This is the cup that Jesus is now being given to drink. This is the cup that the Father. He's giving his son to drink. The cup of his wrath at human sin. The cup containing God's righteous anger against every human sin, every murder, every sexual assault, every act of abuse, every theft, every fraud, every lie, every cover-up, every jealous thought, every selfish word, every choice we have made to put oneself before God. That's a very full cup. Jesus longs for it to be taken away. And he knows that his father is sovereign. He knows that his father is in control of everything, good and bad. It is within his father's power to stop this from happening. For everything is possible for you, he says, yet, verse 36, what a yet, yet, not what I will, but what you will. He prays what he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done. He chooses to submit to his father's plan. He chooses to go to the cross. What incredible strength. Isn't it extraordinary? And in the verses that follow, we see this strength, this resolve, play out as obedience. Just look at what happens from verse 42. Look at Jesus' extraordinary calm as this sequence of events develops. Staying collected, as he sees his betrayer coming, verse 42. Astonishingly accepting a kiss from him, verse 45. Maintaining utter composure as he is arrested, verse 46. Not batting an eyelid when a disciple springs to his defence, verse 47. Gently exposing the underhandedness of his captors, verses 48 and 49. And then watching as his every follower disappears, verses 50 to 52. Knowing that what he must now face 
over the next 24 hours, he must face alone. What an extraordinary picture of Jesus Mark paints for us. One I so often miss or make little of as I flick through the dogged pages that we read each Easter. Our response? Well, isn't it interesting that of all the responses of the disciples in these verses, the only one that is even close to being the right one, surely, is that of verse 40. They did not know what to say to him. They were speechless. They did not know what they could say to Jesus. What could they possibly say? And maybe we have something to learn from that. In a society that's so quick to speak, where we're so keen to get our point across, so desperate to be heard, our lives ruled by 24-7 messages, notifications and updates. Maybe we have something to learn from that. Of course, we know as we move through to the end of Mark and the ends of the other Gospels, the book of Acts, that this weakness, this desertion, this speechlessness turns into repentance, wonder, joy, God-given faith. But maybe before we get to any of that, we need to pause here in Gethsemane and simply be speechless. For what could we possibly say? Why are the disciples rendered speechless by what happens here? I don't think it's just because they objectively see that they are weak and that Jesus is strong. I think it's the extent to which they realise, the extent to which they feel those things as they see these events. And of course, we, we aren't told what was going through Peter and the rest of the disciples' minds as these events unfolded. We can only guess from their actions. Although surely their silence suggests at least a smidgen of self-awareness, a realisation that they might not be able to live up to their bold promises in verse 29 and 31. But whether they fully realised it here or not, surely we see from these verses that our sin is more serious than we think and that we are less godly than we think. And that Jesus is stronger than we think. First, our sin is more serious than we think. Well, look at what it costs Jesus to deal with it. Look at the anguish, the turmoil, the torment he went through as he considered not the physical aspects of his death, but what spiritually lay ahead of him. Our sin caused Jesus to be overwhelmed to the point of death. Our sin caused Jesus to cry out to his father, desperate that there might be any other way. God's anger at our sin filled that cup that Jesus drank. And yet we so often make our sin so small, and so insignificant, we hardly notice it. But it was our sin that sent Jesus to the cross. 
Maybe we need to take some time to dwell on that. Stop making excuses, giving defences, blaming other people, blaming God for what we've done wrong. Maybe we need to stop and dwell in Gethsemane before we rush on to the resurrection and to forgiveness. Maybe we need to be speechless for a while. Secondly, we're less godly than we think. For Peter did not realise his weakness from some, some sort of objective, neutral, spiritual position. No, he realised that he had greatly overestimated his godliness. He had thought he was capable of much greater things, much greater service, much greater obedience than it turned out he was here in this garden. And I wonder whether perhaps we're guilty of that too. I think I am. We focus on our strengths. We ignore our failures. We think we're immune from temptation, that we won't fall into the sins that other people do. We assume that we would succeed where others fail. I don't know what that might look like for you. Perhaps um, we look at couples struggling in their marriages, divorcing, divorced, and we think that could never happen to us. Or we look at people with children or with children older than ours and we're quick to see the mistakes and the struggles and we know that we would do it much better. Or we work for Christian organisations and uh, we think that we would find it easy to manage the trials and the pressures of working among and for unbelievers. Or vice versa, we work in the secular world and we think how simple and easy it must be to work for a Christian charity or a church. Perhaps we need this reminder that we're less godly than we think, less immune from temptation, less unlikely to fall into sin than anyone else. Maybe we need to stop in the speechlessness of Gethsemane for a while. But the disciples aren't only rendered speechless by their own weakness. Surely they are speechless at what they see here of Jesus' incredible strength. And so should we be. Despite the great suffering he was clearly about to face at the cross, he went through it. The resolve he made in verse 36, he stuck with to the very end. He endured it all. He drank the cup of God's wrath for us. And that means we don't have to be strong. Did you notice? Jesus didn't need the disciples to stay awake. He didn't need the disciples to stand guard. He didn't need the disciples to pray. He didn't need the disciples to fight back, to stay by his side. No. He didn't do it with them. It didn't help him. He did it for them. A grand sum of nothing depended on their ability to be strong and obey. And isn't that the most incredible comfort and encouragement to weak sinners like us, to sinners who are struggling, who are failing to stay strong? Nothing depends upon our strength and our obedience. 
for it has all been done for us. And so we can come to God broken and in weakness and in failure, limping, staggering, on our knees, bringing only our failure, no victory. And he will not turn us away. He will welcome us in. For it depends not on our strength, but on his. How humbling that is. What a relief that is. And I wonder, how do you need to hear that today? You don't need to be strong. You can stop and be speechless and trust. Because he has done it all for us. Let's pause and then we'll pray. Father, we thank you for the great contrast we see in these verses between the weakness of the disciples and the strength of Jesus. We repent of how we think we are strong and think we have to be strong. We overestimate what we can achieve, just like Peter and these disciples here. But thank you so much that you have done it all for us. You have borne our sin, though it is greater than we can possibly understand on the cross. And we can come to you broken, weak, sinful, failures. Thank you so much. Amen.